All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2-Bit Idiots. I told you we have an excellent season kicking off 2020 and I am joined today by none other than the co-founder and CEO of Circle, Jeremy Allaire. Uh, fun fact about Jeremy and his team, I believe I was one of the earliest applicants um, to Circle, and this was back in late 2013, uh, had actually Indeed. gotten an introduction through one of their board members, and uh, as fate would have it, um, a gentleman uh, by the name of Anders uh, that I was uh, considering starting a stablecoin project with, uh, way back in 2013, 2014, uh, interviewed around the same time as I did. And basically, we came in around the same time, and and I told him, well, they're going to make you an offer on the spot. And he said, no, 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 it's just an informational thing. And sure enough, you guys made an offer. Anders left me. And he recently <laughs> You still blame Masari. me for that. Oh, uh, he no, joined Masari. He recently joined Masari. And you are now focused on stablecoins pretty much exclusively. So the, uh, the intersection there uh, over the course of the last six years, and of course, there's, there's been some, uh, some work in between, between my involvement with, with DCG and some of the work yeah. we did while I was at Coindesk. Um, it's been fascinating to watch Circle's evolution over time. And, uh, and I think that you're in a very good position right now on the USDC front, which we're going to talk quite a bit about as it is emerging as, as you know, one of the leading contenders for what's going to be a, a dominant stablecoin, especially in the U.S. dollar-pegged uh, stablecoin market. Um, yeah. So we're going to cover a lot of territory right now uh, over the course of the next hour. But, uh, Jeremy, for, for starters, um, I'd love to get the, the quick background on you. I think some, you know, many people in the industry know a little bit about your, your background um, previous to, to digital currency, um, but but let's talk about that just to, to start, and then the evolution of Circle, kind of in your own eyes, um, and then you know I'll maybe jump in with with a little bit of uh, my thesis uh, as as to kind of where Circle goes from here, and then we can kind of bat that around, and you can you can tell okay. me how far off I am since I'm very often. Oh, that sounds fun, but never you, in doubt. Uh, you, you were you were a good, uh, uh, I think a a, uh, a very sharp early uh, speculator about what we were going to be doing when we were stealth back in mm -hmm. 2013 and early that's 2014. Right. Yeah, um, that, that's that's how and, we got in touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think you even knew some of the internal code names we had for different things, which sort of talked aspirationally about where we saw digital currency going, and mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and it's it. Well, well, we'll get to all that conversation in terms of kind of where things are today, but yeah, my yeah, my background just for for people who aren't aware, I've been working in um, internet platforms for a long time since the early. 1990s, um, and um, I, uh, I had a background in kind of studying, uh, you know, political economy, global political economy, um, and that's what actually drew me into the internet in 1990, um, and um, you know became kind of very very obsessed about um, what you could what you could do with it, and 
worked on multiple companies over the next, um, you know, 15, 20 years. I think what animated those companies was excitement about the promise of open platforms, open networks, permissionless access to open protocols, what you could do with that with information, communication, software, software delivery, media, um, all these kinds of things, which were, you know, I think, um, you know, critical kind of infrastructures that kind of built up on the layers of the internet from the early 90s through obviously still today. Um, and so, you know, first, you know, first business was really enabling programmers to build software applications through web browsers, which was quite novel in 1994, 1995, um, but really empowering a new generation of developers to create software for a new kind of model um, and to build kind of content applications, as we'd like to call them back then. And um, that grew into um, a public company. And then eventually we merged with Macromedia, one of the dominant internet uh, design and development tools companies. And I was chief technology officer there and worked on um, Flash Platform back in, this would have been in, you know, uh, 2001, 2002, 2003. Um, and, um, you know, at that time, Flash was the most ubiquitous piece of software on the internet. 98% of computers had it. And you, we could actually upgrade the runtime of the internet in 12 months because we could basically launch a new version of the player. It was like a new, almost like an operating system. It had a virtual mm -hmm. machine. We were advancing the programming language to do a lot more stuff. And we had a, a set of ideas that when you had broadband and Wi-Fi kind of lighting up, which were just sort of happening then, that the kind of user experience of the internet could could be a, a lot more rich. And we put underlying like primitives into that platform for video. Um, and um, and that you know sort of sparked my my next like major passion, which was you know in early 2002, sort of interested in you know how could you disrupt what is the te television and um, and media distribution not just like newspapers coming online or print magazines coming online, but actually television on the internet. And so I started another company, left, left Macromedia, started another company called Brightcove, which is a listed public company now, which I took public um, a little bit before actually starting Circle. And that was, again, a platform company. So basically providing platforms for companies and developers that wanted to you know, use video and do video distribution, not just to browsers, but to mobile devices, TV sets, all this stuff. Um, and bypass the legacy system for media distribution, kind of going over the top, uh, which is the phrase that we used with uh, software and media communications um, in, a, in those generations of the internet. Now, you know, I, I sort of think about things like stable coins as like we're doing an over the top uh, financial system mm -hmm. by building it all on open permissionless networks, open networks, uh, protocols, yeah. building platforms developers can build on um, and really trying to create a, a user experience around money that's really different. But um, th that's sort of a little bit of the thread that runs through it. And I think um, in 2012, uh, had just taken Brightcove uh, public. Um, and like a lot of people around 2012, um, became you know interested in and then obsessed with cryptocurrency, um, not just you know Bitcoin specifically, but the, the broader kind of arc that we could see back in early 2013 when Sean and I were batting around, you know, starting circle. Um, and, um, you know, many, many of the ideas that sort of animated the founding of the company, um, things that we imagined becoming possible, um, are actually just now becoming possible. And so it's a super exciting time 
um, in the industry. It's a super exciting time, I, I think, also for Circle, but it's a very exciting time for the industry where, you know, many of the things that got us to found the company and belief systems about what could happen with the global financial system, you know, where you could actually start to see some of those emerging. So that's a little bit of my background and a little bit on uh, how I got to Circle. Great. Um, so we, we glossed over uh, quite a bit of meat in the middle, right, in terms of, of kind of where Circle started and, and kind of where you've been the last few years. Um, and when people see the focus today on USDC, and Circle Pay is still integral to the, the app, correct? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so Circle Pay, we, um, we ended service on Circle Pay last year as a standalone um, service. So, um, and I can which talk through the kind of which, which which one am I thinking of? So so the 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 the, the current product suite includes USDC and yeah. So right now we have the USDC service, which is available mm -hmm. to individuals and institutions and businesses, mm -hmm. and then we have a whole new set of products that we're gearing up to launch very soon. Great. So they're all built uh, around USDC okay, so, stablecoins. So, yeah. so, so obviously, um, you you sold Poloniex, um, you sold the OTC business, and um, that was my misunderstanding on CirclePay. But but the reason I, I thought that it might still be integrated was because you were one of the earlier companies to think about um, digital dollars moving you know back and forth using Bitcoin, right? So. Uh, there was a buy-sell functionality early on with, with the Circle wallet and trading sure. that looked a lot like Coinbase um, in terms of its function at buy-sell, simple buy-sell functionality, ability to buy with credit cards. But um, the there was a Venmo-like quality to a lot of what you built subsequently sure. using, using crypto assets. Um, and what was interesting was you had completely abstracted away the fact that Bitcoin or, or any cryptocurrency yep. being used which yep. in my eyes is kind of a precursor. If you had a digital dollar, right? if you had a tokenized um, stable coin, yep. then it, that would be the, the, uh, the actual asset that you allowed people to, to see in their totally. accounts. Yep. And actually yep. transact with. So we've kind of gotten to that point now, but you've gotten out of the direct to consumer yeah. phase, I guess, uh, with, with Circle Pay. Yeah, so, so talk about the right. backbone now that, that. Yeah, I think um, just for context, and uh, this is, it, it's that you're right on in, in a lot of this. I think um, the context is so, so when we started the company in 2013, um, you know, th there were sort of several fundamental premises that we had and beliefs that we had. And, um, you know, one of those was that, um, you know, public blockchains um, would be uh, effectively like emerge as like a new infrastructure layer for um, certainly for financial applications, you know, there's sort of a, a broader set of idea around like fiduciary trust applications that could span not just pure finance, but fundamentally like public chains could be a new public infrastructure layer on the internet for financial applications. And at the time, there were certainly multiple blockchain projects, but Bitcoin you know, really dominated. And in early 2013, what brought me into the space was not just sort of where Bitcoin was then, but there were a lot of really interesting projects that were going on to think about, okay, where could you go with this public infrastructure? How could you issue assets on top of it? So you wouldn't just have like, the native token of Bitcoin, you'd have, you know, issued assets, you know, people remember like colored coins were early proposals and, um, you know, th you know, things like counterparty, there were a lot of really interesting projects, but 
the technical community was very interested in that. Like, okay, if we have this kind of trustless transaction layer and ledger and it, it, it's highly secure, like what happens when you can layer other things on top of it? So that was one thing we basically said, okay, that's going to happen. I don't know exactly which way that will happen, but we, mm -hmm. we actually hoped it would happen on Bitcoin and it, it did not. And, and maybe it, it eventually will. But, um, and the other was, there was all of this talk about how do you expand from like the very basic script that you could use for things like multi-sig transactions or, or very simple kind of script um, with Bitcoin and, and actually kind of blow that out so you could actually have a fuller virtual machine and you could actually write code AKA smart contracts um, that could not just, you know, interact with these issued assets, but actually could allow you to codify economic relationships in code, literally, and, mm -hmm. and have that running on this public infrastructure. And those two ideas were what got us really excited that, you know, if those things happened and it got to an infrastructure where you could, you know, scale it to like the same scale we use, say HTTP or SMTP or other protocols on the internet, that that would be the building blocks that would allow you to have the building blocks to actually recreate the financial system in the image of the internet. Mm -hmm. And that's why we were so excited. And the, the circle, like, you know, you know, very early on, we like, we never, we didn't put bit or coin in our name. Um, and we were very conscious about that because we wanted to you know, build a company that might outlive Bitcoin. It wasn't necessarily about the coin or, mm -hmm. um, or whatnot. And, um, and the other was, you know, and actually the very first blog post we ever did when we kind of debuted the company in, in the fall of 2013, we talked a lot about global digital currency, about the, the promise of value moving the same way that, you know, text messages and content and data move on the internet. And what we aspired to do was create a user experience that used public blockchains. Bitcoin was the initial, the only like, reasonable public blockchain to build on at the time, but which abstracted that away and allowed you to essentially um, instantly move between dollars, zeros, pounds, and um, instantly kind of move in and out of Bitcoin as like a transaction settlement layer. So you could have open interoperable transactions across digital wallets and seamlessly move between currencies. Now that, mm -hmm. that was what we built with CirclePay. So CirclePay actually was designed so that you had dollars or other currencies and you could send your dollars to any Bitcoin address. And uh, the, you know, the, the hope was that there'd be more and more digital wallets constructed similarly to the way Circle was built so that you'd have this open pipe that moved between kind of, you know, what we thought of as like proprietary closed systems, like individual currencies mm -hmm. and have this kind of open infrastructure to do it. So that was, you know, that was sort of how we, how we envisioned things and what we initially built with that set of ideas. But before you uh, shut down the CirclePay uh, product, did, had you transitioned to another tech stack? Did you use Ethereum or were you continuing to go with Bitcoin? Because, you know, yeah. um, th there's a bit of history here where, you know, every single time that I speak with an executive, whether it's you or, or Bill Barheit or Eric Voorhees, that lived through the hard fork war, right? Sure. <laughs> of, of yeah. 2017 where, where fees spiked and there was a lot of uncertainty as to how the network split was, was going to yeah. ultimately uh, resolve itself. Um, that you, you can, you can feel the scar tissue almost, right? Sure. <laughs> because yeah. so many of the payment companies, um, their business models were, were absolutely impacted with, with the rise in fees. 
Um, what, what was your reaction to that? Not at a, a philosophical level, but, um, but just from a practical business level yeah. uh, in terms of managing that treasury uh, yeah. back end to m- maintain yeah. the abstraction of this. Well, it was interesting. I mean, so, you know, the, the way that our system, um, you know, was built and that actually kind of lives on as a platform infrastructure, which we're now going to be releasing other products for other people to, to use. But the way that that infrastructure was designed was that you could kind of, um, you know, instantly move between these different currencies and through Bitcoin. And so we, we actually had to build like an instant liquidity engine um, uh, to, to do that. And um, we were actually quite good at that. And that was actually a source of income for us. And that actually mm-hmm. that liquidity engine and the automation and the tooling and then the humans that ran it, that actually became our second product, which was Circle Trade. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the essentially what was like a proprietary treasury and liquidity system for our payment network system became a, a separate, you know, B2B product, essentially mm-hmm. an institutional trading product, but it's a bit of a tangent. But I, I think the, um, the really important thing is, so when you go back to that, that time period, um, the use of Bitcoin as like a public settlement network was not viable. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and we were, we were outspoken about that. Um, and I used to like get hate mail about making comments <laughs> about that fact that it, that Bitcoin wasn't going to scale, uh, that it wasn't going to be useful for, for payments that like the, many of the things that we, when in 2013, when we started building this, we thought would happen on Bitcoin, it just didn't happen. And you, we could talk about why or ideological or, or philosophical kind of things. And those are very real. And, and I think there's integrity to, to all of that in terms of where things have gone for Bitcoin, preserving its position as a sort of non-sovereign store of value, which is, mm-hmm. I think, a very compelling, defensible and important position. But from our perspective, we were interested in what people now call like open finance or DeFi. We were interested in like, okay, I want to like, I want to tokenize dollars. I want smart contracts for financial interactions. I want to like, build a system that will connect to mainstream users so that people everywhere can get the benefit, not just of saying, Hey, we're moving to this non-sovereign monetary system, which is this, you know, kind of alternative universe, but, but actually like take central bank money and make it more useful on public blockchains and get the benefits of, you know, true digital assets for things like fiat, but have the, openness and interoperability of an internet model. So that was what we were interested in. And in late 2016, we made a decision to move technically away from Bitcoin. And um, we announced a project back then called codenamed Spark. Mm-hmm. And we, there's a blog post, you can go read about it. And the Spark project was basically our commitment to rewrite the infrastructure for how fiat um, tokens would work mm-hmm. and that we were going to do that on top of Ethereum and that that was going to be an open source project. Um, Spark became center, became USDC. Yeah. So um, we yeah. basically starting in, in, um, in, in 2017 began work on essentially recreating that layer um, because Ethereum had gotten to a place where things like tokens and smart contracts were in production. They worked. You know, there were lots of issues with Ethereum then, and there still are issues with Ethereum. But basically, we could see, like, as a as a project, as an infrastructure, like it was it was vectoring in a way where we could actually take these ideas and actually implement them, um, and and do that in production, and do that on the open internet, and that was really exciting. So, we um, yeah, we began that work 
Um, and then obviously that launched in 2018. But that was a, a pretty important kind of moment in time where we, mm -hmm. we started that, that shift. And then when we introduced USDC, I think we, we kind of announced it in um, May of, at Consensus. I think you were very involved mm -hmm. at the time, but uh, in May of, of 2018, um, uh, you know, our decision then was not to couple it just to our own payment system, but actually, you know, launch it as a consortium, launch it as an open standard, uh, launch it in a way where anyone could utilize it. It was the tokenization was sort of open to all and, and really try and build out an open ecosystem around it. Um, and, uh, and obviously, um, you know, obviously um, we, we announced what we were doing and then, uh, and then when, when it officially launched into general availability, uh, Coinbase was on board um, as part of a co-founding member of the center consortium. Um, and that was just over a year ago or so. So, um, and that's yeah, sort so, of how that emerged. So in, in 14 months, uh, USDC is up to about 450 million uh, in, in circulating supply. Um, and that's real circulating supply, right? You know, unlike the, <laughs> unlike the ephemeral, uh, you know, market caps that you'll see uh, going down the coin ranking list. This is liquid dollars that have been infused into the system that, that are in a, a deposit uh, uh, taking bank. Um, you, uh, you've been outspoken about Tether. Many people have been. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, how you, how you view the evolution of the stablecoin market because there, there's really four different types of stablecoins, maybe five, right? Um, there's Tether, which is like the Wild West coin that is going to play the shell game and, and arguably be a truly permissionless, uh, unseizable store of value that's pegged to the dollar. And because it's become so systemically important in some overseas uh, exchanges, especially, you can see in some respects why it's held its peg, even with all the surrounding controversy and uncertainty and, and, and the issues with the underlying banking infrastructure. Um, then there's DAI, right, which is managed by this, this you know, algorithmic central bank, if you will. Um, there's uh, programmatic assets, um, uh, the most uh, high profile one basis was shut down, but there st still are a couple of other um, ideas for how you might be able to create uh, what's a, called a, a senior shares model where some of the early backers sure. become the stop gaps. Um, you've got CBDCs, uh, which I know we're going to talk a bit more about and, and maybe you know the majority of the back half of the conversation where like uh, the Chinese one, the Bank of Thailand, the ECB, sure. you know, there, there's, there's a bunch of these going on. And then there's USDC, um, and and maybe I'd put, and you can explain why I'm wrong if this is the case, but but uh, I put Gemini dollars, Paxos, uh, and and USDC kind of in the same general bucket of that last tier of assets, which is you have a regulated entity that has good banking relationships that is um, really in the weeds on the regulatory compliance fronts. Um, and working with only the top tier exchanges that have you know, pretty strong KYC AML checks and balances. Um, the question there is always to, to me, is that going to be a, an inter-exchange settlement coin um, or will it be able to proliferate in all of these other applications that you had hinted at in terms of your interest in DeFi? Because there is a, uh, a regulatable element to it because you're talking about securing assets that are part of the existing financial system, tokenizing those assets. Um, I, I wonder where the primary use case is going to be for the time being, because mm -hmm. um, it's not as permissionless as, say, DAI, 
but it's also probably a hell of a lot more reliable if you're using it the way stable coins have been used to date, which is primarily for liquidity between these different institutions. Is that a, is that a good framework for thinking about this market or, or how would you slice and dice those different? Yeah. Products? I mean, I, I, I think it's a fine framework. Um, I, I think, um, I, I, I don't want to sort of opine on the pluses minuses of, of each of those, but, but maybe, um, maybe frame out a, a little bit of, of, of how we look at things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I guess um, the, the, the first piece is, um, you, you know, the, there is obviously like a need for um, uh, permissionless censorship resistant type of, of monetary instruments. And, mm -hmm. you know, Bitcoin is clearly like the best one out there today for a host of reasons. I mean, there, there are others that are interesting from a privacy and security perspective um, that maybe have some advantages over Bitcoin on, on that. But, you know, just to, you know, generally speaking, that, that's a pretty strong one. Obviously, having a stable value, uh, permissionless, censorship resistant, um, you know, digital currency is also really interesting um, for, for a host of reasons. And I, I think projects like Maker are, are really interesting um, from that perspective. Um, I would challenge the notion that that uh, that Tether is uh, censorship resistant or, or permissionless um, because it's a corporation and it is a corporation that is subject to law and jurisdictions and jurisdictional reach. And, um, you know, this space, uh, global stable coins is deeply on the radar of every major government. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I, I don't think like that's a bad, I think that's fantastic news because I think the benefits of digital currency, of, of taking central bank money and rendering it as digital currency, but ideally rendering it as digital currency in a way in which that, that digital currency unit is fungible, is interoperable, and can run on public networks, that's really profound. That's why we started Circle was a belief that that would happen. And from our perspective, what, what's most important is that you have standards um, the, and this, this is that gets to a really, really key set of differentiation when we look at what's out there, you know, the internet is built on standards. It's built on interoperable standards. Um, the fact that we can access all of the world's knowledge, uh, you know, so seamlessly is because we have a standard called HTTP and HTML that no one controls. It's, it's, you know, there is a governance process around the standard. Lots of different companies in the industry implement it. There's lots of different implementations of the protocols that support it, but that open network of information exchange is so, so, so powerful. And we have that in a lot of other spheres on the internet um, as well. And if we want an internet of value exchange or, or you know, you, you, you want the benefits of, of the internet for the financial system, ideally you'd have, you know, standards and interoperability schemes that, are open and that everyone can implement and that don't create the, you know, fragmentation, but actually, you know, drive the network effects that come from it. And so mm -hmm. a first principle for us is a belief that there, you, you have stable coins have to be governed by consortiums um, and that there have to be many, ultimately many members that are both kind of minting members of those consortiums. And then there can be many other types of members that are in different kinds of distribution roles and that, the, those, those firms um, are conducting a regulated activity and they have to do that in compliance with, with the law. The laws need to be updated. Like we need, mm -hmm. I think we need ultimately new laws to deal with 
um, this new phenomenon, right? And, and that's coming, right? So yeah, do- dollar peg stable coins should probably not be regulated like securities. <laughs> Definitely not like securities, but I mean, I, I think, you know, this gets into this. Well, I mean, this is, un- this is under discussion in the U.S. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very yeah. aware. It's although crazy. the most recent drafts of that legislation um, provided a carve out for things mm-hmm. like U.S. dollar coin, very specifically to say if it's a, if it's fully reserved and backed by dollars mm-hmm. it's, and it's, you know, and it's, you know, made it available in this way, it's, it's not a security and, and that's pretty critical. But um, I think Which is though, a shot across the bow for Libra. Uh, but good for any sure. dollar denominator or, or single. Sure. I mean, that was, yeah, I mean, that was, I call that a nuisance bill, not like a, a bill that actually has a chance of becoming law. But I, I think um, they sort of make a point kind of thing um, mm-hmm. in a committee. Um, and we'll see. These these things are, are very real. And But I, I guess like the, the, the like meta point here is, and I talk at length about this in this white paper that we've mm-hmm. just published um, uh, as well. But um, the the meta point here is that you know the reserve currencies from you know let's just call it the G20 countries like they're not going anywhere. Um, the international monetary system and all of the trade and commerce that happens through it is 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 enormous. It's incredible, and I think what we're interested in is you know how do we deepen the integration of these world economies. And how do we use all the lessons that we've learned from the internet to transform media, communications, software, retail, transportation, other things? How do we apply those to the financial system? And you know, the the the, the reserve banks, these central banks, are critical to that, right? They're not just going to roll over and say, oh, "I'm just going to let a bunch of private companies just run off and do a whole bunch of you know balkanized you know or or you know tons and tons of these different." Um, you know, digital currency tokens for their currencies, they're going to come up with rules. And if you look at the way the financial system is regulated, there's sort of the, the kind of custodians, there's the risk takers, and then there's kind of market infrastructure, which is quasi regulated, but the market infrastructure, you know, it's sometimes self regulated, like exchanges are sort of self regulatory frameworks, Mm -hmm. even the securities industry itself is sort of self regulated. But, but also market infrastructure like Visa that emerged um, as a nonprofit association um, of commercial financial institutions who said, we need to have interoperability. Like if we all have different cards with different schemes, like then no one can pay anybody and we don't get network effects. And so why would we want to do that? So they said, okay, let's, let's agree to a standard. Let's create a nonprofit association, which we can be members of. And, you know, at the time, like central banks weren't really in like the, let's just call it like retail electronic money. There was, that was the birth of retail electronic money. And that was really important. The central banks didn't say, well, we have to run all the infrastructure for retail electronic money. They said, okay, if you can come up with a self-regulatory scheme and a set of technical standards and everyone agrees to those, and we as central banks say, okay, that looks like it's safe and sound and the issuing institutions that sit underneath it are following our safety and soundness requirements, then that electronic money system is legitimate and we're going to let it run. SWIFT is sort of the same thing as well. It's a nonprofit association. It's a mm-hmm. technical set of standards. These, these associations and standards are actually how the electronic financial system works today. And so what we're basically saying is we need the same kind of consortium models that have public-private partnerships that work where governments, including central banks, work with private sector actors to come up with the supervisory frameworks for how this should work. And there shouldn't be 50 different private companies issuing 50 different U.S. dollar stable coins. There should be a U.S. dollar coin 
and it should be a standard and it should ultimately have um, a rule set that is, is reasonable within the context of, of the way the monetary system works. The thing from our perspective though, is, um, you know, the, the, you know, each of these things pushes the experience, the possibilities of money forward in new ways. Like, um, the retail electronic money pushed the possibilities of commerce forward in, in really powerful ways. I think mm -hmm. in the case of stable coins, it's much more transformative. It's much, much deeper because you're talking about a digital, you know, digitization of fiat basically means that your, your central bank money, no matter what currency it is, no matter what central bank it is, exists everywhere that the internet exists because it's, internet money. It exists everywhere an IP address can be reached, including mm -hmm. intergalactically. Like it's, it has this instant global planetary reach. And if it's running on a public network, it has all these incredible attributes for the benefits of, of commercial integration. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think, you know, from my perspective, we've said for a very long time, um, we've, we've sort of said, you know, um, payments will just become a free service on the internet in the same way that communications and information sharing have become free services. Because ultimately when you get to a public infrastructure where you can tokenize and, and have this kind of digital currency, like the, the, the cost of moving it around will be essentially the cost of moving data. It will move towards zero. The really interesting opportunity is when you have programmable money and now what can you do with that frictionless value movement and how can you, you know, you know, automate, interesting economic arrangements between parties on the internet. That's actually why this is so different than say the retail electronic money chains that you saw with things like Visa. Yeah. And, and uh, look, I, I think you can, you can envision future applications that leverage this and, and uh, make use of the enhanced speed and, and the cross border functionality and, and, you know, all the different tools that you might be able to build around this um, to, to great effect and, and, you know, ultimately unlock new business models. Um, but for starters, you talk about competing standards. So let's talk about the economics of these uh, stable coins, because um, if you're right, right, and, and the end result is that ultimately the major exchanges that have issued stable coins, you know, Gemini, uh, Paxos, uh, you and Coinbase are already, you know, uh, hook, line, and sinker with USDC and the Center Initiative. Um, if the end state is that all of these organizations should work together, then the economic system needs to work such that everybody's going to profit the same amount whenever they create a digital dollar and kind of release it mm -hmm. in the wild. What has held that up? Um, because I, as, as someone that I think is pretty deep in the industry, I don't know the difference between those, those three different uh, stable coins, right? To, to me, you just lump them all in one bucket because they, they more or less have the same general model. So what's the, what's the holdup just with the U.S.-based exchanges? And then how do you ultimately increase the member set so that this can include companies like Square and their crypto team? Sure. Stripe yeah. or, or, or yeah. the really big players that will move sure. me. Probably not the banks at first, but the other major you know, fintechs. Yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I think there's a few things. So the center consortium and the membership model is uh, in a place where you're going to, you know, start to see uh, other types of membership and other types of firms that are, that are involved, uh, involved with it. And um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes on that, which I won't talk about in detail. I think the, the vision there is um, 
while, while the initial use case or what I call the bootstrap use case for USDC was crypto capital markets. Like that was where people needed it. It was reliable. It had yeah. all these other attributes. Like that's not the end game. That's a, it's a step along the way. I think the next phase of this is, you know, moving into payments and settlement more generally. And then over the long run, it's sort of transforming commerce through programmable money and the contracts that that enables. But um, the, the kind of payments and settlement piece is the next phase. I think, you know, um, both Libra and the, uh, uh, you know, Chinese, uh, you know, digital electronic payment system, DCEP, the digital currency electronic payment system, excuse me, um, you know, project in China, have been huge wake-up calls to central banks. They've been huge wake-up calls uh, to large financial technology companies, financial institutions, others. And so there is a lot more attention now on, okay, this, this is getting real. How do we play? Um, how do we play as a government? How do we play as private sector actors? There's a lot of movement happening um, around this. And I think um, you will start to see momentum build around standards. Um, uh, and it will be, to some degree, say, in the U.S. government's national interest for there to be standards around this, as opposed to fragmentation. Um, and, um, you know, the, so anyway, that's a, that's a high-level view of, of sort of what we see evolving. Um, I think um, the... You know, from, from my perspective, um, the expansion and growth of Center isn't so much about how do you add more crypto exchanges. It's about how do you add ecosystem players that are going to ultimately bring this to hundreds of millions or billions of people um, or are going to make this an infrastructure that's usable by businesses um, all over the world. Um, that's the, you know, that's as you move to payments and settlement, as you move to that next phase, and there's technology requirements to get there too, sort of blockchain 3.0. Uh, mm -hmm. as well but that's the really interesting i mean my my perspective is that the you know the adoption of stablecoin standards for the crypto exchange ecosystem is 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 interesting it's important um and i think usdc is doing an excellent job i mean even just take say DeFi as an example um you know within the DeFi ecosystem which is growing at a nice rate with fiat backed stablecoins usdc has 99 percent market share uh, and mm -hmm. so you know, it's, it's, I think it is a standard in many ways from an ecosystem perspective. If you look at developers that are building and integrating with it, application services, others, it's, it's doing quite well, obviously in terms of market capitalization for that, you know, kind of fiat backed, you know, compliant and full reserve model. It's, you know, you know, significantly larger, uh, you know, th than other players almost a hundred X larger than say Gemini dollar, just as an sure. example. But um, so I, I think it's, it's doing well there, but the, the, the interesting thing from my perspective is how do you get this, not just in the crypto trading ecosystem, how do you move this um, into a much, much broader set of use cases? Well, that, that gets into my next question and, and maybe the answer is none of the above, but you use the, uh, the card networks uh, as an example of how this member models worked in the past. Um, if you think about the initial use case of inter-exchange settlement, then there's a lot of parallels with SWIFT. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if, if crypto is, is ultimately going to be uber successful and, and, and truly rip out the back end of the existing financial system, then um, you're not talking about SWIFT, you're not talking about the card networks, you're talking about uh, building a new parallel 
reserve banking system, right? Where, you know, well, in terms of how yeah. money. So, I think so there's what, what's the right, what's the right framework here? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things here that are really important, I think. Uh, and they're, and they're very related, which is um, the innovation in how like consumers access financial products and service is being driven by technology companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can, you, everyone uses China as an example. Like it, it is, it is two, the two of the largest technology companies in the world dominate retail finance. Um, and, and they, they are absolutely substitute goods for what you'd think of as banking. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're seeing, you know, in, in, in Europe and the U S not just like neo banks, but you know, players like square players like PayPal, others, um, and players like Facebook attempting to be in, in a space. And I think that, um, that's one, which is that you know, digital wallets is, if you want to use that kind of concept, um, not what we think of as like a, a crypto wallet, but a, a digital wallet, a fiat digital wallet. Um, those are sort of the, you know, the, the aggregators of a lot of users. And what you really want is you want interoperability amongst those. You want, you know, I want my PayPal dollar to work with my Venmo dollar to work with my Square Cash dollar to work with my Alipay Yawn to work with my Revolut Euro. Um, mm-hmm. you, you want that kind of interoperability at the consumer layer. And then that's where I think infrastructure like the center protocols can, can play a role. Um, and that also relates to the other question, which is sort of what's the reserve bank model and are you creating like an alternative, you know, Federal Reserve type system? And, and I definitely do not think so, because I think ultimately digital currency issuers and, um, and, and technology firms uh, that are kind of moving into this space, they ought to have uh, eventually they ought to have, you know, direct accounts with the with the central banks. And the central banks ought to say, if you want to mint digital dollars, you need to be in a consortium that defines the interoperability and other things for that. But, um, you know, you, you also have to have some supervisory relationship with, with the government um, mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of looks at that. And, you know, the, the, these sort of technology, technology companies will be in a place to, to have those kind of relationships. And so this, this sort of over the mid to long term sort of pits fintechs against traditional banks. Both of them could certainly play in it. Um, but even in, say, England, which is, a, I think, a, a, a pretty advanced market in, in a number of areas, you know, mm-hmm. they've opened up the central bank clearing system um, for, you know, accounts uh, and, and ultimately the kind of central bank reserve system, they're opening it up to fintechs. So I think um, it relates, the, the reserve model ultimately for stable coins will actually be central banks. Um, and, and that, you know, that will, that will evolve in the coming years. And, you know, there's a, a lot, there are a lot of proposals in the financial um, regulatory ecosystem being put forward on ideas like hybrid central bank digital currency hybrid central bank digital currency is the idea that you have public private schemes um, that are agreed to between central banks and private sector actors. And that there's new forms of charters that are created to hold reserves and accounts at central banks um, that are backing digital currency issued, um, you know, units. So, I mean, I think that's probably where things go. Let's talk about Circle's role then in Center in particular, because you've obviously gone all in on this as the direction of the company um, using the the card network uh, historical analogy, where the banks got together and said we need the, these standards. Ultimately, 
one of the more, you know, a couple of the more valuable fintech companies in the world, uh, financial companies, period, are MasterCard and Visa, right? Um, so they started as these nonprofit consortiums. Sure. Ultimately, there was a company that provided tools and services and kind of maintained these networks. Um, is that the right way to think about um, your, your upside here? Because it, I think everybody should be rightfully uh, skeptical as soon as they hear, oh, we're participating in this nonprofit, very friendly you know, ecosystem. It, 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 that yeah. is more believable when people well, so know circle, what's your it's, Yeah, I mean, Circle itself. So um, we're interested in, you know, the broad commercial adoption of, of, of stable coins for payments and banking. So we're interested in how this becomes usable for more and more businesses in a lot of different ways. And so um, what we have talked a little bit about and, and we'll be talking a lot more about as, as, as we roll some things out is, you know, Circle um, over the years has built up, you know, behind all of the things that we built, a set of platform services. And those platform services you can think of as like crypto native banking, transaction banking, interfacing between the existing financial system and the crypto system, dealing with infrastructure like blockchains and custody. Um, and we want to make that available to a mm -hmm. lot of companies um, to be able to build on. And so, um, you know, circles go forward, you know, businesses you can think of as a, a kind of mashup of platform services that people build on top of and, you know, kind of business banking, but stablecoin native. And mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, that's what we're interested in. And I think for us um, right now, there are hundreds of companies that are interested in building using stablecoins in different ways. The creativity around how you can apply and use stablecoins is, 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 I think, one of the most exciting things that's out there. You can use a lot of different examples for that. And the demand for that and the demand for platform services, APIs, and, and underlying kind of commercial banking-like infrastructures is really high. So um, those are the places where we can uh, generate a lot of value. Um, you know, the business model is not like, how do we, you know, get our revenue share on interest income for uh, a currency, which today obviously is, is declining its, its interest. Um, and, uh, and that is certainly part of the center model and, and supporting center itself. But um, for Circle itself, um, you know, we want to provide these broader platform services and financial services so that businesses everywhere who are interested in utilizing stablecoins can do that. We're uh, super helpful. I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, and I'm sure we're going to hear more color about it, maybe even as soon as next week. So we're recording this on a Thursday before Davos. Uh, I assume you have some announcements coming out next week, um, which will be yesterday or the day before as people are listening to this conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's a little, a little, a little wonky, but is there anything you can share uh, that's off the record, but will soon be on the record? Yeah, I mean, so we, we actually, we don't have any major business or product announcements because Davos is not so much a place to do product announcements. People don't really care, mm -hmm. but it is a place where, you know, thought leadership is really important. And what I can say is, is two things. So one is um, this topic, global stable coins, digital currency, the future of the international monetary system. That is like a front and center dialogue. I can tell you there are many, many conversations that are gatherings that are, you know, private and public of the top economic leaders in government, the top leaders of industry, um, critical leaders in this ecosystem, such as ourselves and others. 
And the focus is on, you know, how do we move forward models for this, not just on the regulatory side, but, you know, what does this look like for the world economic system? So it is a major topic. Um, you know, the, the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, is incredibly passionate about it. You know, critical stakeholders and board members of the World Economic Forum, like Mark Carney and Christine Lagarde, are also very passionate about this. So this is a major topic, which is great. And I think it's um, great timing for that. And um, it's not like uh, Davos is not like a decision making body, right? Yeah. It's not not the G20 and it's not a national government, but it is it's a the ultimate it is the ultimate um, <laughs> convener of the public sector and the private sector to move agendas forward. And this is a big agenda. And so we're involved in a lot of those conversations, which is great. And we're also going to be contributing to the dialogue um, with um, the, the launch of a white paper on this topic, global stable coins, digital currency, and the international monetary system. And it outlines um, our thinking on how ultimately economic policymakers industry leaders should be thinking about this problem space and, and, and ultimately how we get this to scale in the, in, and, and the benefit ultimately touching everyone in the world. So um, we're, we're trying to contribute to the dialogue. Well, you know, I will say uh, I've, uh, I've never really cared uh, to, to be quite honest about uh, my own personal attendance at Davos, but this is probably the first year that I have a little bit of FOMO uh, because uh, there is going to be so many fascinating conversations that are happening on the heels of Libra, on the heels of, of DCEP uh, from, from China and, and some of the other uh, chatter uh, from everyone from the Fed to the IMF and, yeah. and, and obviously you know, excited for, for you all to play a part in that. Um, Last question. Uh, are you going to reschedule the Buffett lunch for Davos? When, when uh, are you disappointed that that's not my lunch, <laughs> but you were one of the invited guests, right? Uh, I was, yes. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully you're able to get that, uh, uh, that invitation extended and, and, and it gets rescheduled for your sake. Anyway. Um, yeah. Happy the, to chat with, with Mr. Buffett if that became a possibility. Um, so, Jeremy, where, uh, where can people learn a little bit more about uh, USDC and, and maybe, you know, particularly for businesses that are thinking about yes. uh, membership or, or starting to uh, yep. develop the mindset around what platform services they might be able to leverage? Yeah. I mean, so um, two, two pieces. So on circle.com, obviously, there's a, a great deal of information about USDC. You can learn about USDC. You can sign up for a Circle account and get USDC and, and, and use it. Um, so, and that works with banks from 85 countries in the world. So that's mm -hmm. a, that's a good place to start. Um, if you're interested in the higher level concepts and sort of where this is going, this white paper is, is, I think an interesting read. Um, and then center itself. So center.io, um, has an enormous amount of information as well. Um, and if you're, you know, a, a FinTech or if you're in the crypto ecosystem and you want to have a, a partnership and involvement with center, that would be, uh, where to go as well. Well, Jeremy, really appreciate you coming on uh, and good luck with Thanks, everything uh, this year and, and in particular at Davos. Uh, thank you. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Until next time, be good. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.